um, the Apostle Paul wrote his young protege, Timothy. He actually wrote uh, Timothy two letters, and he wrote um, another guy, um, Titus, a letter as well. And all those are called the pastoral epistles. And when you, as you all know, we're working through 1 Timothy verse by verse. Um, and over the last few weeks, we've seen that, you know, this, this uh, letter is to instruct the church on how we should behave, on how we should act, on how we should interact with each other, on how we should love each other, on how we should care for each other um, as a church, uh, but also in our community, how we should engage um, our community and the nations at home. And, you know, as I was preparing this sermon this morning, or all week, that I was thinking about this morning as I was praying, you know, um, in all generations, in all cultures of all time, uh, the, the Bible, you know, challenges the people, uh, confronts the people with their sin. And I'm sure if you have read the Bible, um, there's passages and verses that, that you've read and it has really convicted you and really made you feel awkward and, and, and has challenged you. Well, this passage this morning definitely challenges me because it's about pastors. Uh, and it's actually, there's a part in there, it's about pastors being paid. Uh, so it, it can, it's going to get a little awkward up here for me. But, you know, we don't want to jump around and skip around God's word and just read uh, the passages that we're comfortable with. We want to hear everything that God has to say, uh, because as we'll find out this morning, everything he says is to our benefit. And um, so so just keeping that in mind, uh, let's let's go to God's word or let, let's go to prayer uh, this morning and just pray that, that we'll be sanctified um, and that we'll be encouraged by God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus, and God, we just pray uh, that your word would sanctify us by the truth. We know that your word is truth, and God, help us this morning. We need help, and you're the only one that can help us. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll specifically be looking at verses 17, and we'll go all the way to chapter 6, verse 2. So not too much, but a little bit longer than than previous weeks. So, uh, like I said, um, it's important this morning that we actually take the time and do the work uh, to understand what Paul is asking Timothy uh, in this passage and what he's asking us, what he's expecting from us, what he's teaching us. So we have to, we, we got to try to not be distracted by some of the, the verses in this passage that can get our attention, like there's going to be talk about uh, pastors getting paid. There's talk about elect angels. There's talk about drinking wine. And while all those things uh, matter, uh, I think there's a bigger point in, in the passage this morning. If you remember last week, we thought about how we are to interact as the family of God, how we're to treat each other as a family, uh, not really a DNA family, but the reality is our life together is really going to transcend uh, DNA. Our DNA is going to rot in the ground and we're going to be given new bodies one day and we'll be worshiping Christ together forever. The church will. So this family tie is actually in some ways uh, more significant than other family ties. In the church, uh, we said last week that older men are like fathers and the younger women, that uh, older women are like mothers and we are brothers and sisters to one another. Uh, in this room, however, we are called to seek and love and care for each other like we are an actual family. But in this room also, uh, there are, as, as there are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, 
Um, not everyone in this room is pastors. And this room is not filled with pastors. It's not filled with shepherds. And there are only two pastors. So with that being said, let me read through this passage here and you'll kind of see uh, where we're going with it. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good services are believers and beloved. So like I said, not everybody in this room uh, is a pastor, uh, but, but this church is made up of brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers. All right, only two men are pastors in this room as of right now, uh, myself and Tyler. Uh, we were recommended and affirmed by the elders of our sending church in Bargetown, and we were ultimately and officially set apart by our sending church in Bargetown. And then finally, uh, you all, Trinity Fellowship Church. We have some out today, but Trinity Fellowship Church, as we signed our church constitution a few weeks ago, officially called us as your pastors. So we're going to seek to understand this text this morning and what it means to honor pastors by answering three questions. How does an elder rule well, which we'll see in verse 17? How do we as a church give elders double honor? And why do these things matter? So how does an elder rule well? How do we as a church give elders double honor? And why do these things matter? <clears throat> like why did Paul even take the time to write these things to Timothy? So for elders uh, in this church, ah, well, we have a very small budget. We are a very poor church, and, and we say that boldly and unashamedly. Um, but but as, as of right now, I'm receiving uh, a small but very generous housing allowance. Uh, the majority of our budget uh, definitely go, it will go to uh, missions and service and ministry. Um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, in the next five, ten years, uh, Tyler and I can take more of um, a role in this church as far as being compensated. And, and you know, who knows what will happen? Um, maybe we'll be full time one day. Who knows? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, but but that's 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 not really the point right here. The point I'm trying to make is that everything else I say in this text about pastors and elders, we'll use those words interchangeably today. Um, everything I say about myself and Tyler is equal other than the pay. OK, so right now, Tyler is unpaid. I am paid. 
uh, a small wage. But everything else I say this morning will refer to both of us. We have equal authority, equal respect, equal love and care given to the church by us. So I just want to give that um, so we can be on the same page. So let's get into it. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So our first answer to the first question, how does an elder rule well, is this. By aspiring to live like, love like, and die like Jesus. So how does an elder rule well? By aspiring to live like, love like, and die like Jesus. Right away, I want to make it clear that the pastors of Trinity Fellowship Church, we're not CEOs, we're not managers, we're not bosses, we're not chosen based on our good work performance or our ability to grow this church really quickly. We are your brothers in Christ. We are co-heirs in the kingdom of God. We are chosen and loved by God like you all. Our leadership does not elevate us above Above membership in this congregation. We aspire to serve in this capacity and have been examined and tested and by God's grace have been selected to lead this church. We strive to align our lives by the grace of God through the strength of the Holy Spirit with a life of Christ, seeking to hope, obey him in every area of our lives. Definitely not perfectly, but persistently, persistently putting sin to death persistently allowing the person of Christ to be glorified in that place. So submission to rule and authority, as we know, has always been difficult in the world. It was difficult in Paul and Timothy's day. Submission and authority is difficult today. But submission in this family, in the church of God, in this group of people, it's a good thing, especially when the men you are submitting to are themselves submitting to Christ and his word, his ruling in their own lives. And in chapter three, Paul lists the qualifications of an elder. We went over that several weeks ago. The first qualification is the man must aspire to be in the office of an elder. Uh, they have to want to be an under shepherd. That means they must aspire to live like, love like, and die like Jesus for the glory of God and for the good of his people. They um, are men who aspire to lead and are being led by the truth of Christ themselves. And Christ should be transforming them. This is the first mark of an elder that rules well. Without a personal labor-intensive pursuit of Christ's likeness, an elder cannot rule well. He can't rule at all, much less rule well and teach his people to do the same. Pastors need to know Jesus if they want to teach other people to know Jesus. Now, this call to know Jesus is not unique to pastors. This is a calling on all of our lives. But the problem is, is not many people woke up this morning and thought, I am created in the image of God. I have uh, fallen and broken that image. But by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, he is restoring me in that image. And today I'm going to live like that is true. I'm going to pursue him and lead others to do the same. The reality is our hearts aren't tuned correctly and completely with God's. So pastors are called and laboring to, to labor and to know Jesus so the church might labor and know Jesus. And that's the second point. Let's move on to our second reason for the first question. An elder rules well by laboring and preaching and teaching. 
One of the fruits of the pastor's personal pursuit of Jesus is his ability to understand the scriptures, but not just for himself, but to give it away to others. Our steady diet of God's word in this church um, will inform our weekly gatherings, our liturgy, our order of service, the songs we sing, our community groups, our service and missional outreach in this community and beyond. All of that is should be the result of the labor of your pastors. We should be guiding and leading the church in all of that so that the church is headed in a godly direction. Uh, we think about apathy and laziness. They, they don't go together with the pastor. Laziness and apathy is the anti-elder. That's the anti-pastor. You can't have or be a lazy pastor because let's read verse 18. For the scriptures say, you must not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. An elder that rules well, works hard and labors like an ox or like a day laborer, not like a king or a prince or a CEO or a manager sitting in an office, kind of just delegating the labor amongst the employees. Not that a CEO or manager is doing anything wrong, it's just a different Role. It's a different office than that of pastors. Pastors are described as a sturdy ox plowing straight lines in a field. And when the harvest comes, treading out that grain. Another example, uh, which makes more sense to me because I'm not a farmer, so I know nothing about an ox, what I just said. I just Googled it and it said that's what happens. Uh, another example here, which makes a little bit more sense to me, is that of a laborer, uh, one with sweat on their brow, uh, blisters on their hands. Uh, this is the picture that the scriptures point or paint of our elders. And so pastors are in the scriptures and they're preaching them, but they are also in homes. They're also in people's lives, teaching and modeling what it means to follow Christ and to live for him. That's the pastor's labor. And that leads us to our third and final answer to the question, how does an elder rule well? An elder rules well when the fruit of their labor is evident in the people that they serve. Man, a laborer is a pretty terrible laborer if you don't have anything to show for your work. It's kind of like I played golf for the first time yesterday since like November. And uh, there's a uh, whole seven at Rosewood. Uh, in November, there was a house being built and it was like, uh, you know, all you could see was like wood, right? There wasn't like brick and roof and all that. But I went by yesterday and it's like done. And I was like, man, you know, like. I bet those builders, they see that the progression of that house. And they're like, well, I've really accomplished something. I could tell that they have accomplished something. So a laborer without anything to show for their work is a terrible labor. You know, if I went out there yesterday and saw that house and, you know, it was the same as it was in October, I'd be like, man, you need to call Scott, you know, get him out there quick. Um, you wouldn't hire him back. Timothy uh, was in Ephesus. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter to him. And Paul wrote another letter uh, to the actual church in Ephesus and all the surrounding churches. And this is what he said in this letter, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 7 and 11 through 13. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul is reminding these churches that each person in every church is being gifted by God to serve, to pour into the lives of each other. So you in this congregation, we are a body, um, and we as a body are gifted, but God has actually gone a step further, and he has gifted us uh, with shepherds, uh, with teachers who are charged to equip us and with the purpose of equipping us so that we again would minister to each other well and to the world well so that there would be fruit. There should be obvious fruit. I can speak uh, that there is fruit in my life because of the pastors that I have had, and I want to thank them for that. I pray the members of Trinity Fellowship Church will be able to say the same thing. The goal is the maturity of the body of Christ. The scriptures say the elders are gifts given to the church by God to labor on the church's behalf that the church might grow into a mature body and, the, and then minister to one another. Think of our head. Our head is Jesus Christ, the person, the perfect God-man. And God has given us these elders to help build and mature this body. And we'll never be worthy, but by God's grace, Jesus is making us worthy. Jesus is using pastors to help do that. So an interesting side note, it's not a major in this text, but it is a minor here. Paul quotes both the Old Testament and the New Testament in this passage, talking about both the oxen and laborers. He calls them both scripture. That's an Old Testament uh, passage that he's referring to there. Some like to think that the Bible is just some modern invention, some modern idea. But actually, the church's belief that the Bible that you are holding in your laps right now is Scripture is, is as old as the church itself. And Paul takes it one step further. In 2 Timothy, he says, all Scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is clear. He is good at making sure he says the same thing over and over again. So my intention on taking so much time on rule well, just two words in verse 17, was to show us why these men are worthy of double honor, meaning essentially uh, for pay and respect. So the mysterious double honor, there's a lot of controversy around what that means. Uh, you can try to think of it in a lot of different ways, but I think the context just points us straight to this idea that we should pay our elders and that we should respect our elders. Uh, we don't give this respect because of titles, uh, because of degrees, or because of years of devotion, but because of Jesus. Uh, the person of Jesus because of their love for him and their devotion to him and their devotion to us as a church. These men were, uh, deserve double honor because in many ways they have taken on double roles in the congregation. We have talked about how all of us are brothers and sisters to each other. We're mothers and fathers to each other. And so pastors are that too, but they're more than that. They step into the role of shepherds and leaders. They have taken on a double row. And with that, James 3.1 says they will be judged more strictly because of their willingness to do that. Uh, that is remarkable, uh, but it's also humbling and it's also frightening for those that are pastors. Let me read Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as, though, as, as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you hear that? Um, Keeping watch over your souls, they will have to give an account. These men have willingly stepped out, uh, stepped up to care for souls. Not only that, they will give an account for how they did it. It used to be hard for me to think that, that anyone other than Jesus should receive double honor. But when, the, but when you read these things, when you understand these things about the men who lead us, I believe it becomes easier to honor them well. They seek Jesus. They labor for the church and are producing that same fruit of seeking Jesus in the church. They will be judged more strictly and be held accountable for the church. That's a lot. But it's important to note, however, that double honor is only due to the elders who actually rule well. That's blatant here in the text. It's not a blanket statement to cover up sins or abuses of power. This is a statement meant to protect God's gift to the church, which are elders and teachers who are ruling or supposed to rule according to his will and to his word. This section of 1 Timothy is surrounded by warnings of false teachers and incorrect corporate living. Paul is not writing to protect the status quo of sin and abuse of power, but to bring power under the loving authority of Jesus Christ. He is building a structure against corruption, not to protect it. Paul makes it clear that all abuses of power should be dealt with publicly. Paul makes it clear, Paul makes it real clear that all elders in the congregation would operate under a healthy fear of sin and its repercussions. And God calls the church, the congregation, to labor on the pastor's behalf. He calls the church to do that in three distinct ways. So let's look at our second question. How do we as a church give elders double honor? How do we as a church give elders double honor? I think there are three things here that Paul says and how we do this. First, fair pay. Second, fair trials. Third, fair treatment. Double honor does not mean double pay. Paul is a unique person. He often worked and didn't take payments for churches. He often earned his own money by making and crafting tents. Or he was blessed by other churches and they would give him money in whatever city he was in. Paul's vision was that the entire world would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel simply put right here. God is real and he created the world and he has authority over it. And the world has rebelled against him. And that is sin. And that separates us from him. We can't be with God because of our sin. But by his grace and in his love, he has has sent his son to die in our place and to take the punishment for the sins that we have committed. And he has opened access to his kingdom to anyone who would repent of their sins and put their face wholly on the person of Jesus Christ. Praise him for that, right? That is the gospel. That is what all of this we're talking about is surrounded by. That's what it's informed by, is that this truth is real. And Paul Paul was traveling around the world telling people that. The world of his day, he was sharing that. The Holy Spirit was pushing him into places that the gospel had never been preached uh, but there, are other, there were other men doing the same things and not good things. They were teaching people and gathering people uh, uh, and they were teaching false doctrines and they were casting spells and, and they were, there were people trying to get money and they were doing these things trying to earn a wage. 
but in order to separate himself from that, Paul also separated himself from pay. And that was a really God-honoring thing to do. Uh, but there, but here in this text, Paul is making a case why pastors should be paid fairly for the labor that they do. Paul knew that when he left the church, the work was not finished. That's why Timothy is re- is receiving this letter. We feed oxen that labor to bring us flour for our bread. Google that. We pay men and women that provide us services that keep our societies going and our economies growing. Why would we not pay the men that gladly labor for the bread of our souls? Why would we not gladly do that and pay the men who lead and guide the societies of our churches who labor here for God's people? It's really a non-issue at most of the churches I've been at, but you know, you'll hear people make it, make it a big issue. But fair pay, though important, is not the only way we honor our pastor. Uh, the second way we honor our pastor is by fair trials. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this verse can be confusing and alarming at first. Uh, if you don't understand it, it's in an, it's coming from an Old Testament context. It's, it's like, you know, do they get special treatment? Is one witness not enough for them? But the rule was for everyone. The practice was for everyone. The intent was actually to protect the innocent, innocent whether it be rich, poor, leaders, non-leaders, from an unfair trial. Let me read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offenses that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So if this is a well understood thought back then, um, then why did Paul have to write this and apply it to the elders? Why did he mention it? Well, the reality is, is public figures are always scrutinized, right? That's how why we have TMZ and the tabloids. And the only reason those outlets even exist is because we love gossip. We love to judge. We love to believe the worst about people, people who are elevated as celebrities. You hear about it all the time. Uh, the mantra of our day is guilty until proven innocent. And the sad thing is, is when the facts come out in that person and that person may be innocent, we say, who cares? On to the next story. You know, give me something good here. Let's move on to the next one. People who get bulldozed by by gossip often do not recover their image, right? Even after the facts come out. But instead of celebrating justice, we move on to the next scandal. Like it or not, many times our pastors sort of are sort of like celebrities among us. They are at the forefront and they are held to the highest scrutiny many times, even their wives and their children. And far be it from us to accuse something that we're not sure of or we're not sure it's true. Let's put gossip and slander away from us. Let us be children of the truth. If you hear something about an elder, make sure it's backed by facts. You know the best way to do that? Go to them, talk to them, tell them, I heard this is true. How can I help? Is there something I can do? What can I do? Is this real? We as followers of Jesus, we should love the light. 
We aren't afraid of confrontation, or we shouldn't be. Let's be careful about the accusations that we make. And let's be even more careful about the accusations that we hear. Just kind of traveling through the grapevine, a lot of us do, don't we? Uh, But this isn't a gag order. It's not a gag rule. It's important to remember that Paul isn't writing a gag rule here. He is actually doing the opposite. If sin is clear, if wrong has been committed, if the evidence is clear, we are commanded by God's word to bring a charge against our elders. Our elders are not cowboys, and the church is not the wild, wild west. We're not a bunch of good old boys. Uh, This is the family of God. God has given us his spirit uh, to convict us. He has given us his word. And as we just read, to bring clarity for teaching and rebuke. He has given us his son to rule over us, to walk alongside us, to love and care for us. And as the scriptures say, God disciplines those he loves. He calls his people to the light. He forsakes chaos. He loves order. He loves justice. That's one of the blessed privileges as the people of God to hold each other accountable in love for the sake of the glory of God and the good of his people. Elders are not exempt from this. They are not perfect, but they are no exemption, right? We should be careful enough to accuse them only of the sins that they have committed, which leads us to the third way we serve our elders. Fair trials leads to fair treatment. That's our third way. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. As for those that persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Rebuke is love. Calling out sin is care and it's kind. To ignore these things is to ignore the word of God. It's not to love your brother and your sister. We must remember this letter is full of instructions to counteract false teachers and bad elders who are abusing their power and adding to the gospel. Rules of, remember we read about eating and drinking and abstaining from marriage and so on. These are serious problems in the church. And Paul is reminding us that serious problems call for serious answers. Like you have to be serious about it. We are commanded to confront each other and to speak the truth in love to one another. We read earlier how God's word is useful for correction. It's useful for rebuke. We should believe that truth and use it to encourage each other and to call each other out of sin. Uh, Matthew 18, there's a process on how the church calls people out of their sin. Uh, It says that we should go to him and we should go to her and we should seek out reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, uh, we should ask some people to come with us and do that. And we should pray and we should plead with them that they would repent. And if that doesn't work, then we should bring them in front of the church all in hopes of reconciliation. Paul commands us, Paul commands the church to do the to do this with the elders as well. They get no special treatment. They do not have a license to sin. They, um, they're just like everyone else, and they need people to help them walk with Jesus. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. Our elders are not perfect. They are going to make, make mistakes. They do need rebuke. I need it. Me and Tyler need it. We need help. Because of, uh, of the status, it's easy to overlook some sins. Like, ah, 
you know, that's Richie. He's okay. I mean, I've known Richie. He's been Christian for 10 years. He, we'll just kind of ignore that in his life. Um, you know, I don't need to talk to him about that. It's easy to do that with pastors. It's also easy to blow other sins way out of proportion and walk up to them and say, wow, I can't believe you did that. You're supposed to be a pastor. Uh, this can't be how we treat our elders. We should love them enough to call them out when they are wrong. That it would bring out holy fear in them and for other elders. And that elders and the congregation would truly realize that it is really God who has the authority. Elders have authority and the church is called to submit to them, but really the only legit authority that pastors have is given to them by God. It's given to them. We must remember that sin is against a cosmic authority. It's a cosmic problem against a cosmic audience. Paul reminds Timothy that God and Jesus and the elect angels are calling us to give no special favor even to our pastors. The perfect and righteous judge of the universe and his chosen jury sees everything. We should take that into account and give no one special treatment. So for the curious in here, short word on the elect angels before we move on. It's not entirely clear what is meant by the term elect angels, but it is clear what the point is. And the point is to shine light that there is a righteous audience watching the church. There is a cosmic audience. Paul has reminded Timothy that God is watching in a few different places, that God is watching everything in a few different places. But this is the only time he brings the elect angels into the conversation. So there are a few theories that exist to explain why. Some people believe that these are the angels that are over the churches in Revelation. Uh, you may have read about that. Other people believe it to just be angels, that God's angels, uh, they are his angels to carry out his will and are doing his work. Others believe that it is the angels who did not sin against God and did not fall away with sin uh, with Satan. Um, I don't know for sure what Paul intended here, uh, but honestly, I like the last explanation. It seems just to fit the context a little bit better. Paul is reminding Timothy that, that not everyone who seems to worship God actually does. Even angels fall away. Uh, we must be careful to not let wolves remain in sheep's clothing. And verses 22 and 25 uh, speaks to this. Uh, so let's read real, real quick. Um, verses 22. 25. Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves, um, keep yourself pure. No longer drink, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous before them, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So, excuse me, I'll turn the page. The purpose of these verses is to warn, not to make decisions too quickly uh, on who we appoint and to keep those who we do appoint on close watch because sins that are hidden have their way of coming out. 
Praise God. Don't you love that God loves the light? Don't you love that God hates your sin? Don't you love that he has called you out of it? Sometimes we think it would be a tragedy if my sin were exposed, a tragedy if my elders were exposed. But this is so far from the heart of God's. This is so far from God's heart and his mind. God loves to expose sin, not to embarrass or hurt you, but to heal you and to to bring peace, to bring peace to us individually and to our congregation as a whole. So when sin comes out, we should be thankful and grateful. We should lead each other to repent and to let Christ be honored in that place. Not to be totally negative, uh, Paul ends with reminding Timothy that not only bad works work this way, uh, good works are the same. Sometimes it takes time to see the good that is in somebody, to see the spirit working in them. Uh, so he, say, he says, don't be hasty. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. Why do these things matter? Why do these things matter? These things matter because the pure and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ matters. Why is it necessary that elders rule well? Because when they don't, the name of Jesus is defamed. When they don't rule, Jesus' sons and daughters are wounded. They are starved. They are confused. The church begins to look and act just like the world, ruining its effectiveness to glorify God and to reach the lost and dying world with the gospel. It just ruins it. Why is it necessary that we as a con congregation give our elders double honor? Because when we don't, they can't remain encouraged in ministry, laboring to give the gospel away. Way. When we don't neglect to love uh, and care for the gift that God has given us, uh, his bride to lead us and teach us and to care for us and to equip us, when we don't, when we don't allow that, uh, we allow our pastors to be destroyed and to destroy uh, the name of the one they set out to worship in the first place. It's in the news often. Uh, you know, you've probably read a story about it recently. You know, a pastor falls away. And anytime I ever see that story or read a story like that, I always ask, where was the congregation? Where were the loving rebukes and the kindness and the care to bring him back? It's terrible. So Paul was not telling Timothy uh, to drink wine, to teach us today that drinking alcohol was good. We'll touch on this alcohol part, this wine verse. Or to teach that drinking alcohol was bad. I don't think that's his point. Paul told Timothy to drink wine so that nothing would be added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read uh, verse 23. Uh, verse, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Honestly, this verse has always seemed very out of place for me. Uh, first couple times I was reading it, I just, I just thought, you know, this is medical advice. Why is Paul giving Timothy medical advice in this letter at this point? part of the letter? Uh, why doesn't he just add it to the end? Or why doesn't he just write a whole nother letter to him about medical advice? Um, why, why, does he, why doesn't he save that for another spot? I, I, I don't know. It was a common practice 
that Jews and Gentiles both drank wine as a sort of medicine for different ailments in this time. It seems likely that Timothy was intentionally drinking only water and avoiding wine altogether. That's kind of what the reading alludes to. The reality is, is when Paul, um, I, I don't think he was giving medical advice, but actually I think he was giving spiritual advice. Verse 22, Paul calls him not to participate in the sins of others, but keep himself pure. And then he calls him to abandon his practice of abstaining from wine. Timothy was denying himself medicine like it was modern medicine at the time. At the time, medicine um, to appease false teachers and elders, he was denying that medicine to himself. And, and these elders and false teachers thought it was important that he abstain from this wine. Timothy was participating in their sin by adding to the gospel. May it never be that, that we do that we do that. He needed to purify himself by relying on the pure teaching of Christ. That's why Paul says, keep yourself pure. And Christ crucified alone for the salvation of our souls. The elders should have known this and should have been teaching this. Timothy and the rest of the believers in the church should have known this and rebuked the elders and these men for the sake of the gospel and the purity of the church. It is the blood of Jesus that saves. Nothing is to be added to that. The truth and how we as a church handle the truth, it matters. So as we close, let's talk and look at Paul's advice to bond servants to regard their masters with all honor. What is the reason given for this honor? So verses uh, 1 and 2 in chapter 6 here. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. We must be passionate about the glory of God in all that we do. Christ died to save us from our sins. He was raised to give us a new life. He has gifted us to serve and love one another like he served and loved us. Our elders are called to die to themselves and serve us like Jesus did. We are called to respond to that submission and trust and the care that they give us. The world seeks to take advantage of, of grace, uh, like this servant, like we are brothers. Uh, I don't have to work hard. Um, they want to usurp power and get around it, but the, but the church isn't the world. We should seek to build each other up, submitting to Jesus and to our elders because we care about the name of Christ. We work hard in this family, but we're not trying to earn our salvation. We're not trying to gain something here, or add something to Jesus, but we work hard to show the world the worth of the one that we have been saved to. We care about his bride and we do anything to represent him well. The pure and precious message of Jesus Christ matters. Our love for God in his name should transcend our love for self and our comfort. 
The people around us should look at the church and see why authority and submission can be beautiful things and really are beautiful things. They should look at us and see the beauty of Christ. They should see our love for Jesus and his work on the cross as a truth worthy to give their lives to. They should see our love for each other, even in rebuke, and long to have what we have. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for this challenging word today, especially to pastors. But God, it is challenging to the church as well because uh, many times sin and fear uh, can hold us back from sharing the truth. And a lot of times um, our hearts can be hardened uh, when we do want to share the truth or, and we do it. Um, it, we can lack love and we can lack a grace. So I pray that we would be a church uh, that uh, that is not scared of confrontation, but that we would be transparent with one another because of who Christ is and because of what he's done for us and because of his spirit is living inside of us. Uh, I pray that, that we would live out these instructions uh, that we've read this week and previous weeks on how we can love each other like a family, like a real family, because we are a real family, a family that you have created through your son, Jesus Christ, and your spirit. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.